Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And filling in for the incomparable Nick Saveri, it's Sabrina Rodriguez. See, she can't even say incomparable. That's right. I don't, we don't even know if Nick is incomparable. Uh, on the program... He is. He is. <laughs> okay, fine. On the program today, a Georgian recap. Nobody better to tell us about everything that happened this past week in Georgia. Sabrina and I on the lessons learned in the runoff and nationally for both parties uh, plus, speaking of one of those parties, the former president of the United States had another busy week this week. The Trump org convicted of tax fraud, uh, the Trump team finding a, four, a few more loose documents in a West Palm Beach uh, storage unit. It's not mine, folks. More on that later on the program. First, I say hello. I would always say hello to Nick Saveri. Now I have, I think, his equal here because uh, Washington Post, political, she's been on the show a bunch of different times. How are you doing? She's she's doing this show from a Georgia hotel room because she's been covering everything happening here in Georgia. How are you doing, Sabrina? How is take the audience inside what you've been doing over the last couple of weeks? Yes. Well, last few months at this point, um, I'm good. We have survived the runoff election. Um, We survived the general election. So I am excited to get to go back home to D.C. tomorrow. But um, but no, it's been a good run in Georgia. and, And finally over. We got results. We can unpack those. That's right. And we have a lot to unpack because uh, I want to ask you just at a high level, though, um, you were obviously down there for so long talking to different people, voters, especially. I'm going to play a little sound later on about something I want to get your reaction on. But just at a high level, uh, were you shocked at all in terms of 
the voter turnout this time in the midterms as opposed to what it was in November? A lot more people came out this time. What what, what were some of your surprises or maybe some things that just were kind of run of the mill that that you were like, oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't too surprising to see the strong turnout because so many people in Georgia have now been conditioned to this being normal. Um, you know, while for the rest of the country, you know, obviously being from Florida, this is not the, this is not the norm, the, the runoff system and all of that. Um, and so many elections in such an amount, short amount of time is not common. But in Georgia, I mean, one of the things that I expected after the general election was sort of like, yeah, there's going to be fatigue. Like people are so tired of seeing like ads nonstop all day about Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Um, but but as soon as I started having conversations with people, that was not the case. Um, you know, hearing people on the ground and, and voters and people from all walks of life saying, you know, like, no, I get it. I understand the stakes. Like, I might not like the idea that I have to go back and vote, but but I know that I have to do it. Or, yeah, I get the point. Like, I have to. I, it's, a, it's my responsibility. Or I hate the other candidate and absolutely I'm going to go and vote. I mean, people obviously have different motivations for what why they they still went out to vote for the runoff election. But um, I think it's made very clear what the stakes are in Georgia. Um, I will say, I think it was it was surprising to see the differences between the campaigns in the final days of of just the number of campaign events and things like that. Um, You know, we got some indication that you know, Republicans were really worried and that Republicans were feeling like they were going to lose because even like around Thanksgiving, you know, Herschel Walker stopped hosting events. He like did like a five day stretch where he had no campaign events. And then meanwhile, you saw like the Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock had like nonstop, you know, events and stuff. And for someone that's here and following it on a day to day basis, it was like five days is a long time um, and sent a lot of signals for what was going to happen. Yeah, that is interesting. And and obviously, as somebody who follows you on social media, if you don't follow Sabrina, follow her across the different platforms. But you were posting at some of these events and obviously the different people that were coming down the campaign for both candidates. Let's let's get into the runoff. Uh, overall, uh, I want to play first the sound. If you missed uh, a little bit of Raphael Warnock's acceptance speech and obviously Herschel Walker's concession speech, take a listen to this. After after a hard fought campaign, you got me for six more years. But here's my promise to you. I will walk with you even as I work for you. Because, because here is what I've learned as a pastor. You can't lead the people unless you love the people. You can't love the people unless you know the people. And you can't know the people unless you walk among the people. But one of the things I want to tell all of you is you never stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. I want you to believe in America and continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials most of all. Continue to pray for them because all the prayers you've given me, I felt those prayers. There's no excuses in life. And I'm not going to make any excuses now because we put up one heck of a fight. I found a lot of that interesting and motivating there on, on the Warnock side. Obviously, you know why the tone for both of them. Um, I'm interested. We were just talking about things you were hearing from voters on the ground. There was a poll that we mentioned in the last episode. I had a former uh, TV host that you're familiar with here down in Miami, Rick Sanchez and Marie Hart, former State Department spokesperson and Fox News contributor. We were talking about uh, some of this stuff playing out. But 
And the poll that we discussed in the last episode was an exit poll, I believe, from CNN, with which found most of the Herschel Walker voters, uh, about 48 percent of them, 52 percent were voting because of Herschel Walker himself. 48 percent say they were just spiting Raphael Warnock, whereas in reverse, it was 83 to 17 in favor of Warnock. We've had a bunch of different people on this program kind of analyzing candidates. Matt Brown, who's a colleague of yours, has been on this program as well. But people that have written books with, that contained Herschel Walker and Jeff Perlman, the New York Times bestselling author. And they've all kind of mentioned like Walker was kind of out of his league, right, in terms of like just oration skills and other things with respect to not even being a senator, right, not really in, in the politics world. But then you see the final tally, 514 to 48.6%. What is as somebody who was on the ground and saw this and covered this, what what are the lessons learned from Georgia on a local level and then that we can apply to the national level? Because this race was still close, even though you hear both candidates there, you hear their tone and, and you you talk to other people that have covered both of these folks and they're like, this shouldn't be that close. And yet it was. What does that say to somebody who is covering it? Oh, I could unpack this for days <laughs> with you, but um, I mean, I think one of the big things, though, is is it's important to note, you know, Georgia is newly a battleground state. I mean, us having these conversations about Democrats even having the possibility of winning in Georgia and them actually achieving it is not something that like is the norm, you know, like we. We talk about the swing states that used to be. We talked so much about Florida or we talked so much about Ohio. And we've seen that those states have shifted red, while Georgia, because of demographic shifts, um, has just become increasingly uh, of a battleground. I was going to say increasingly democratic. And that's not that it's not to say like now suddenly it's going to be a blue state, but it is just a competitive state where Democrats can play. So it's not necessarily surprising to see these close races. Um, but the part that is, um, the part that is surprising is when, yes, you look at, you know, Walker's record, um, there was so much talk and so many stories in the media about, you know, his, his past history, allegations of violence, allegations of, you know, he was a staunchly anti-abortion candidate and him, you know, the allegations that he paid for multiple girlfriends to, to have abortions, um, you know, domestic abuse claims, um, claims that he, you know, whether questions around whether he even lived in Georgia, um, because he for decades had lived in Texas and only recently had, you know, moved his red voter registration and said that he was living in Georgia. I mean, the list goes on of things that have come up, you know, over his candidacy of him misrepresenting about himself um, that Democrats really seized on. Um, so I think like a big lesson for Republicans that they're grappling with now is the question of candidate quality. You know, at the end of the day, Walker was a candidate that was handpicked by Trump. Um, Trump really pushed for him to, to run for office. And now there's all the kind of finger pointing in the aftermath of people saying, well, you know, it was built in for him to win. We saw that all these other Republicans won in the state. You know, Governor Brian Kemp, who's also a Republican, won by about seven points in his race. So they're saying, you know, it was built in. People are frustrated with the president of the United States. People aren't happy with the way that things are going in the country. This we should have won this. It shouldn't have been um, it shouldn't have been close and it should have been a Republican win. And now they're really kind of grappling with, OK, well, what is it? That's the problem. And a lot of people are landing on that. It has things to do surrounding with the former president. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see kind of the soul searching that happens or doesn't happen 
within the Republican Party right now. Yeah, I'm very interested in that because I don't see how the, there will be any soul searching. I mean, if you watched Laura Ingram last night on Fox News, there was some soul searching done on that panel. Uh, I want to ask you something uh, because I saw this. This was another ABC poll of about 4,800 respondents or so. And they made a, a demographics, they split it into demographics of people that were voting Democrat and Republican. I want to get your response on this because 62% of the people polled in this 4,844 people surveyed, uh, 29% of them were white, uh, 62% were white, right? Of those respondents, 29% voted Democratic, 70% voted Republican. Of the 28 black, the 28 percent black respondents, 90 percent voted Democratic, 8 percent voted Republican of the Hispanic and Latino, 6 percent of the respondents, 58 percent Democratic, 39 percent Republican, Asians, 2 percent of the respondents, 59 percent to 39 percent Democratic to Republican, respectively. And then others, 3 percent, which was 53 to 41 swinging Democrats to Republicans. I saw this poll and underneath the poll, it said white people going to white people. Uh, and it made me laugh. But then you kind of d- dive into the numbers a little bit more and the makeup of Georgia. What does this say to you about the demographics and the shift of Georgia? Because the big talking point during the night, if you were watching election coverage, I know you were covering it. But across the networks were the large counties that were in the metro areas that still had precincts reporting in and would still have votes trickling in that make up black and brown. Right. And that's where Warnock would eventually take the lead. There was a point where Walker actually took the lead around 1030 p.m. If you were following across the linear networks and then all of a sudden everyone somehow it, it went to Warnock. And of course, there was mass confusion on a certain right wing echo chamber. But what does that what does that say to you about the makeup of the respondents in that poll? That's a pretty large sample size of folks across uh, uh, different ethnicities and genders. And all of a sudden you see that white people starkly voted for Republican and everybody else was mostly Democratic. What does that say to you? I mean, and it tracks with what we've seen and it's tracks with what we've seen in recent elections. And, and even me thinking of like the exit polls that we saw in the general election in November. I mean, those numbers like match, which shows that it, it's not something that like radically shifted in this election or, you know, like in the last month, you know, Warnock changed the game and and built a different coalition. I mean, it shows that Democrats, uh, their their future, their prospects, where their biggest area of growth is, is with voters of color. I mean, that's that's just what we see baked into the data is seeing, you know, to be able to win. And it's not just a Georgia specific thing, but across the country. I mean, for Democrats to be able to win, they need to have extremely strong black turnout. They have to have, you know, very strong turnout amongst Latino and Asian Americans. And I think in Georgia, it's interesting because, you know, we often talk very much about uh, the black vote in Georgia. And I mean, black voters make up like a third of the electorate. So it is huge and and critical, but for these really tight races where the margins are going to be 100,000 votes, 30,000 votes, um, seeing the growing Asian American population in the state, seeing the growing Hispanic population in the state, and who is talking to them, who is really courting them, um, I think is really interesting. And, And because it's, again, if people, it's not just about oh, is a Latino going to go and vote Republican? Because that obviously was like the big narrative and conversation we had leading into 2022. But it's more like, are people going to stay home? Are people, do people feel like this affects my life? Like I need to go out and vote. 
Um, and, and it is interesting to just see like Warnock, for example, in his runoff strategy made a very conscious effort to be trying to engage Asian American and Latino communities, knowing that if this is going to be a tight race, then like 10,000 Latinos will make a huge difference. Um, but I mean, when it comes to, to white voters, um, we've seen that it has not been something that, you know, white voters have shifted towards the Democratic Party in this election. I mean, there hasn't been some radical realignment necessarily, um, but, but it just shows us again that when we're talking about the investment, I think so often in the election cycles, we're saying like, well, what are Democrats doing to court like white suburban women? Um, or what are Democrats doing to court rural voters? And I'm by no means advocating that they need to be doing one way or another. But again, who is the coalition that's helping them win? Um, it is largely these voters of color in these states. You know, I'm so glad that you said that because uh, I was watching you. You and I were texting about this. You were on a Telemundo special talking about this was before uh, November and the election cycle. And you said something in Spanish there. I'm not going to say it here for our English speaking audience, but you said something that resonated uh, with a lot of people where you were hearing from Latino voters. And I don't I don't remember. I know you filmed it in Miami, but I'm not sure if it was Florida voters that said this to you. But you said something to the effect of the Democratic Party does the same old thing. They tell me to vote for them. They don't really give me any reason. And then I'll see them in four years or I'll see them in two years. And so with that, they feel the need to vote more Republican. You were just talking about the narrative overall. Um, what, what do you make of that? Because we've seen the shift of largely Latino voters voting Democratic. I don't necessarily want to get into the Latino. I want to get more into what are the Democrats that you saw on the ground? You just mentioned Warnock was messaging the people. What were they saying? What, what, what is the messaging looking like versus the Republican messaging for specifically this campaign, but then also broadly nationally? Yeah, I mean, for for Democrats, what we saw in the ground in Georgia was Warnock saying, you know, first of all, I'm here to listen. Um, and it's not something that he only did in the final weeks of the election, because I think that's something that Democrats get criticized and all candidates, not just Democrats, but get criticized for like showing up in a community a few days before an election and saying like, yeah, we really care about you. Come vote for us. Um, and, and kind of that pandering that we've seen happen, obviously, historically with communities of color in specific. But, um, you know, it was a strategy for months of, OK, who are the like surrogates that we can line up like people that are part of this community people that understand the needs of these communities that can speak to what people need um that can vouch for us that can help us send our message and help us hear what we need to be doing better um and and i feel like there was a lot of that of the listening sessions going on amongst democrats in georgia with these communities um and and also i think one of the things that i thought was really unique talking to groups on the ground here was that it wasn't like, okay, we're going to have the campaign parachute in. It's like, okay, no, we're going to work with organizations that dedicate themselves to this. Um, so Warnock, for example, did a lot with one organization in, in Georgia called Casa in Action. Um, and, and they understand the community. So for them, for example, if I was like reaching out to the campaign to talk to them about their Latino outreach or something, or talk to them about their Asian American outreach, they would answer you, but they'd also be like, a really good resource is this group that is, you know, that has people from this community that understand this and, and all of that. So I think that's an interesting thing that we're seeing a higher awareness of. Um, I won't venture to say now that like, oh, Democrats have like figured out all their problems with like 
certain groups of voters or anything like that. But I do think in Georgia in specific, there was like a heightened awareness of needing to be better at that. Um, on the Republican side, I mean, in, and I'll say in Walker's, you know, campaign specifically, um, there just wasn't that kind of outreach to specific groups. Um, he was very focused on like energizing like the Republican base. He was really like focused on like culture war issues that was going to like excite and energize like the Trump voter. Um, but he didn't ever veer off from that. So I think like people thought, okay, well, he could be trying to court more moderate Republicans who, and, and that would be maybe a more diverse coalition as well. Um, but that just never happened. So he, you know, he focused a lot on the anti-trans messaging. He focused a lot, um, a lot of the surrogates that he had come speak, you know, we're talking about the border and about immigration and, and these issues that we've seen animate the Republican base, but that obviously is something that, that animates more of a predominantly white crowd. Fresh Roasted Coffee's got you covered. In addition to single origin blends, Mike's a Colombian person. I'm a Sumatra drinker. They've also got a variety of flavors. You also get sampler packs too. I'm all about the sampler packs. But most importantly, let's say coffee's not your thing. If you're a tea person, mm -hmm. they got you covered too, That's Mike. Right. They cover all their bases. So go there and learn about your your learn about your coffee style. You go there to a three four question quiz you'll find out what coffee is recommended for you so you're learning something in addition to buying something but 
As a listener, there's an additional benefit for buying from Fresh Roast Coffee. Look at this man. This man sets up the softball. I hit it out of the park. It is true. Um, if you take that questionnaire that's on their site, it's awesome. And it gets you right into the flavor profile that, that matches you best with the coffee that you should be buying. But you want to enter a promo code at checkout. Put all that stuff into the cart there. Enter in the promo to- promo code. Excuse me. Can we get 20? Can we get 20? This offer is valid for new fresh roasted coffee and positively tea customers. You're going to get 20% discount on any and all coffee and tea unless otherwise specified. Code is not valid for branded merchandise or coffee gear. One use per customer. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right. So now the balance of the Senate is 5149. Chuck Schumer was holding a press conference this week talking about how pivotal this is now that the Democrats hold the majority. I want you as a reporter, you're heading back to D.C. in a bit. Uh, You're going to be talking to members of Congress going forward. Um, Give me a a, tell our audience why this is so important that Democrats were able to gain the seat. Obviously, people maybe read articles and they say, "Okay, well, now Democrats hold it. Maybe, you know, Manchin and Cinema won't hold up certain things. They'll have majorities in each committee. Maybe they'll be, you know, stronger power to issue subpoenas. What, why was it so important for Democrats to get this advantage and have a 51-49 uh, lead in the Senate? I mean, one thing that I'll say that that was a historic, you know, a point of history that I actually didn't know until last night um, is the fact that this is the first pre- this is the first time that an incumbent president since FDR um, hasn't lost a, a senator from his own party. Um, So the fact that they reelected every incumbent senator already was a big deal. Um, And and Democrats are definitely touting that and very proud of that. But in just the day to day, what they're going to be able to get done, um, you know, the fact is that the House is going to be majority Republican. So the idea that Democrats are going to get to pass all this legislation in the Senate and move it to the House and, and getting pieces of legislation done um, is is difficult to see with that kind of breakdown of Congress. But um, Democrats were touting, you know, like there is a huge difference between 50 and 51. Um, Having, you know, a 50-50 Senate with um, Vice President Kamala Harris being that tie-breaking vote, they've faced many challenges. For example, in kind of their power sharing agreement with Republicans in committees, they had an equal number of members, they didn't have a majority. So for example, for dealing with like judicial nominees and being able to move, you know, or or presidential executive nominees, now they will have a majority committee to be able to vote people out of the committees and get people confirmed faster. Um, That's a big win that they're touting. And then for them, it's also just looking to 2024, um, you know, if the reality is that aside from the judicial nominees, aside from like having subpoena power, aside from just the optics of being able to say like, we have that plus one majority, um, they know that the environment in 2024, um, with the number of Senate seats that will be up for reelection, that it's going to be a tough environment for them. So for them to already have baked in that plus one um, is something that they're that they're touting a lot and and that if there is the opportunities to get something done, they won't have to worry as much about cinema and mansion, as you mentioned. I mean, if there is something to get done, they have a little bit of breathing room and a cushion to to push the president's agenda. Yeah. What are some of those? I just thought of this uh, because I want to get into 2024. You just fed in perfectly into the follow up. But what are some of those things that you've maybe heard from 
either Democratic strategists or even people that are on the Hill, congressional folks, what are some of the things that they're looking to get done? Is it just strictly nominees and committees and things like that? What are some pieces of legislation that the Democrats that haven't already gotten it passed, right? It's some major bills that have been passed this past year. What are some things that they do want to do? And one of the big ones that they consistently talk about is ways to lower health care costs. I mean, that's something that Democrats have talked about consistently over the years. Um, you know, I heard Warnock talk about it time and time again. For him, like one of the big issues is being able to pass legislation that would cap the cost of insulin. Um, I know that that's like a passion project for Warnock specifically, but it does speak to some of the larger, broader Democratic priorities that we hear. So I think seeing where they'll be able to do anything on that front having to do with healthcare is something that we could be eyeing. Um, you know, one of the, the failures of the Senate over the past two years and for Democrats was they had talked very much about getting done voting rights legislation. Um, and, and some folks already were talking today about, okay, we need to make a concerted push to, to get something passed. Um, again, there's always the question around like the filibuster and if they would be willing to, to pass something with a simple majority instead of the 60 votes passed. Um, I think there's still lots of barriers to getting anything done, but, but I think, you know, voting rights is one that we could be hearing them, you know, pick up again and have debates around again. Um, now, again, will it actually get done um, is is a real open question. Um, but but again, it is one that like we today are already hearing folks talk about. It's so funny. I mean, you probably know this better than me as just somebody who's been covering Congress and then obviously writing about things like this and talking to voters. But um, it's almost like it's almost like a new season of White Lotus, right? Like you're just waiting to see what happens in this season of On the Hill. But but you know from last season, not much got done. Not not no storylines were really close. I, although White Lotus is probably a bad example because it's an anthology series. But like, do you get what I'm saying here? Like, it, do you ever feel like that where Congress is like your favorite series and like they didn't close some of the loopholes from the previous season and now they're coming into this season and then you wasted seven episodes. Now you're at the finale. They made it really good. And then uh, they leave you on a cliffhanger. And now we're going into the next season. Am I way off base here, Sabrina? No, <laughs> not, at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, that's kind of one of the frustrations that and, and all my respect to to Hill reporters that, that do it on the day to day, because, again, like we have lots of conversations about like, okay, well, oh, they're debating X bill or, oh, they're considering passing X thing. And it's like, nobody says the quiet part out loud, which is the like, is it ever actually going to get done? Right. Um, and I hate to be like so cynical about it, but I do think that, that there is a valid frustration um, inside Washington. And I will say nationally, I mean, I think there's like an actual national question, like voters asking, like, I keep going out to vote for someone that says they're going to do X thing and it never happens. Um, and, and yeah, that's something that I always am fascinated with because I think it's something that like politicians in DC really need to grapple with. It's like, we keep promising these things and then it doesn't happen for what, you know, for one reason or another, but, but it doesn't. So how do you keep going back and promising the same thing? Well, I know this election cycle just ended, uh, but we were talking in a previous episode about 2024, uh, I alluded to it at the top of the show, a tough week for the guy who potentially will be the GOP front runner, the former president, Donald Trump. Obviously, his organization this week was found guilty of tax fraud. 
uh, about 17 counts uh, in the state Supreme Court in Manhattan this past week, receiving luxury apartments, lease Mercedes Benzes, extra cash at Christmas, even free cable television. They should send that over my way. I need some. Uh, and then the Trump search team, he has an actual team right now that is still searching for some of the classified documents to comply uh, with the special counsel. Um, they found at least two classified documents outside of Mar-a-Lago that were at a West Palm Beach storage unit that's being used by the former president. These items were turned into the FBI. Obviously, the FBI and the DOJ are still investigating that with the former president. I say all that to say to you, putting a prognosticator hat on in 2024, I can't imagine you're not going to be on the ground covering some of this. Who is the front runner? I mean, who, who will be the eventual GOP nominee for 2024 for president. And then on the Democratic side, President Biden, 38 percent approval rating right now as of this taping. Who is the Democratic nominee? Sabrina Rodriguez. We're going to play the tape uh, on November, uh, whenever it is, 8th of 2024. We're going to come back to it. Give us give us Sabrina Rodriguez's uh, prognostication here. You know that I am not going to give a Sabrina Rodriguez prognostication, but I will say what, what we've heard from um, GOP strategists and from Democratic leaders and strategists so far. Um, and, and I mean, one of the things that has been the most interesting in the fallout from the election um, has been kind of the conversation of people, you know, Republicans becoming increasingly comfortable coming out and talking against former President Trump. I think prior to the election and what the results were then, there was a big question around, you know, for months, I mean, there's been a question of, okay, is Trump going to run again? And if he does run again, and is there anyone that's going to run against him? How many people are going to run against him? Are people going to shy away from it? I mean, there's been all these questions around what's going to happen. I think there's still several questions to really have answered here. But as we see more people growing comfortable and saying, like, you know, we need to invest in the future of the party. Donald Trump is not the future of the party, because that is something we've been hearing more Republicans say, um, some on the record, some still on background. But but them saying um, there is that question, who is the other person? Um, polling shows and something that I have heard consistently also just talking to voters on the ground is that that person would be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, he has been talked about, I mean, his victory in Florida and, and him, you know, helping kind of write this narrative of Florida having moved from being a battleground state to now being a Republican state, um, you know, that he's kind of doing his victory lap around um, has really put him him in a position where people think of him as like this national leader, this figure that could actually run for president and could win in 2024. Um, so he's kind of viewed as the front runner, but there's still conversations around like many people piling into the race, people like former Vice President Mike Pence, um, former UN ambassador and, and former um, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Um, People like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I mean, I, there's a long list of Republicans that have, you know, signaled interest in running for president that could be announcing. But again, the person that in polling and in conversations um, is coming up more and more is DeSantis. And then on the Democratic side, I would say... Um, I think actually the result, the way that the results in November have hurt Trump in his prospects and in people kind of rallying around him as the, the next Republican nominee um, 
it's the opposite on the Democratic side, where there were sort of these questions around, would someone challenge Biden? Should someone challenge Biden? Is he going to run again? Is, you know, what's what's the move for Democrats? Um, I think the results and, and them having been much better than expected for Democrats has actually quieted down some of that, where people are, are saying, yeah, Biden's going to run again. Um, and, and there isn't really... Um, a front runner or a face of someone yet, at least that that would challenge the president. You know, before I let you go, Sabrina, because you've done such a great job, um, you and I are both Florida. Well, I'm a Florida resident. You're a D.C. resident, but a Florida native. Um, you have so many people in your family that go to the polls here in Florida. Likewise, for me. Uh, on the last episode, I was talking with Rick Sanchez about this. Obviously, Rick, longtime anchor down here at WSVN in Miami. Um, he thinks DeSantis translates perfectly nationally because of, you know, the culture wars and how well DeSantis plays it. And he kind of teeters on this. I'm not really racist, but check this out uh, type of uh, policy. I don't know if that translates nationally, but what says you as somebody that knows Florida politics? Well, do you think Ron DeSantis actually translates nationally and could be president of the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think just from seeing his playbook and and. And I guess, yeah, we have like that insider knowledge being from Florida, but but then also just paying attention to national national politics. Um, it, it does seem that he has kind of built a playbook in Florida that he wants to, to export to other states. I mean, even seeing like some of the efforts that he made leading up to the general election, he felt very comfortable that he was going to win in Florida. Um, so he focused on kind of how would he message what he was doing nationally. And I think a lot of the efforts that he's made, whether it was passing um, the parental rights and education bill and him, you know, talking about a lot of the culture war issues um, has been kind of, you know, the Florida has been sort of the guinea pig for, OK, what are the things that can end up actually being really popular um, or what are the things that could end up really energizing Republicans? I think of also, you know, the, the flight of Venezuelan migrants to, to Martha's Vineyard, sort of as that, like, OK, what are these things that could animate the base and just sort of him testing out what works and, and seeing the popularity that he's built in Florida um, and Florida being a diverse state? I mean, Florida being a state, obviously, with so many Latinos with, you know, older white retired folks, with, you know, having large cities, more rural areas. I mean, seeing, you know, Florida gets talked about obviously as being, you know, like, oh man, Florida and how unique it is, but Florida does have a really mixed bag of people um, that he has been able to kind of test out uh, policies and rhetoric and his demeanor on um, during his time as governor. You know, unique is a very good word there. I know that's not the word you meant to say, but uh, <laughs> my thank yous to Sabrina Rodriguez for being on the program. You were a fantastic fill-in uh, guest host here for Nick Savary. Wish we could fill her in a little bit more than Nick Savary, but nobody heard that. Nobody heard that. Uh, Sabrina, continued success to you. Safe travels back to D.C. and uh, all the great work that you did this election cycle covering everything in Georgia. I wish you continued success. You know that. And you're welcome on the program anytime. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. We miss Nick, though. We do. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at Webflow.com.
All right. My thank yous there to Sabrina Rodriguez, Washington Post, national politics reporter there. She's fantastic. I say the word way too much, but she is fantastic. You know, by the way, I was thinking about this as I was about to do my sign off here. I've never had a chance to myself to just talk to you, the listener out there. I normally make fun of other podcasts that are out there where it's just one person talking into the void and maybe giving you some stats and talking about whatever it is they want to talk about. And they never have people on. And so you don't know how somebody else would feel or is responding to the commentary in real time like I do have with Nick. And it's a little weird. I got to be honest. It is a little weird to do that. So I am so grateful to the people that have come in and guest hosted while Nick Saveri is probably throwing up uh, after riding another Disney roller coaster that that his daughter has forced him on. Uh, we miss him over here at Can We Please Talk. Uh, shout out to Sabrina. Seriously, all the great reporting that she's done on the Georgia runoff. I think for me, uh, final take on this. I think the Georgia runoff is really a microcosm of what we've seen play out nationally. I mentioned this now over the last couple of episodes, but I've just been fascinated by, and again, you could easily go to the AP uh, uh, if, you go, if you're in a Google search engine or whatever search engine you use and type in the 2022 US elections and just look at the notable races from the House and the Senate and see how many, how close the percentage was of the vote. And on down, different states, Arizona, California, Nevada, uh, Colorado, you know, uh, Minnesota, you'll see 51%. This person won by 50.2%. This person won by 51.8%. It's incredibly intriguing to me that I look at it as the voters said, I am going to take this just like an itemized bill. I'm just going to take it. Yep. I like this person for that. And I like this person for that. I don't care if this is R or D because the, the big commonality though, is if this person doesn't respect election processes and right, it's stolen, it's rigged, why would I vote for that person? And you saw that with Mastriano, you saw that with Carrie Lake, you saw that with numerous other candidates. Herschel Walker was not in that election is stolen thing, even though he was part of the Trump umbrella, as you heard there in the soundbite in the first segment. But um, I just thought that that was incredibly fascinating just to see how close these races all were across different states. Look at even Katie Porter in California. You know, she only won by 51.7% uh, to 48.3% in a district where, you know, there's more registered Democrats there, but 9,000 votes separated that. Um, so I thought, and again, California, a traditional blue state. So microcosm for uh, overall. And I just think in 2024, you know, I really do think like we're on an episode, you know, we're like on another season of The Sopranos. We're waiting to see what happened. Tony just got shot. Uh, and they're leaving us on a cliffhanger, even though that happened in the first episode of season six. But it's just it's just interesting to me. And Sabrina and other congressional folks have kind of mentioned this, where it's like they're going to work on this, that it's so important to vote for this party and that party. Well, OK, well, now Democrats have the majority in the in the Senate by two votes. Republicans have a 221 to 214 advantage in the House potentially right now. There's still one race up for grabs. Uh, we're not really up for grabs. It's still counting votes. But. Um, okay, so what happens now? Where's the legislation that gets passed from the House that moves over to the Senate? Is there enough votes? It's like a it's like a wash, rinse, and repeat type of cycle. One thing I did want to say before I sign off here, uh, the Ted Cruz story that came out recently. Um, you know, I have said this before, not only on the show, on television as well. Uh, violence 
against members of Congress and their families, even self-inflicted violence, like what happened uh, potentially with Ted Cruz's daughter in this story, if you haven't heard about this, is terrible. Um, I'm sending out, you know, blessings, thoughts, prayers, whatever I can send out to the Cruz family, regardless of his politics and regardless of what we've said about him on this show, the questions we've asked other Texas reporters and people that have covered the senator himself, you don't wish this kind of thing upon anybody's family. Um, it truly is um, heartbreaking. I thank God that she is still alive. If you hadn't heard about this story, you can go check it out across the various news outlets. But just like Representative Seth Moulton, who came on the program, talked about uh, in his interview, the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, if you know somebody that's going through something right now, head to 988lifeline.org to find out more information about how that person can get help. Let's get these folks help because it's got to be tough. I'm thinking about it now as we've made comments about you know the caricature that he plays in American politics. And you really don't think about the families that are affected of this, especially when you see a story like this come out and it's somebody younger, I believe she's 14 years old, uh, self-inflicted knife wounds, according to the reports right now as of this taping. And that's really sad to hear. Got her whole life ahead of her. And, you know, wasn't her choosing of her father being in politics, but doesn't mean she's immune from hearing and seeing this play out in her everyday life. So um, I feel for what he's going through right now, the senator and his wife, Heidi. Um, so I want to send thoughts and prayers to them because it is, you know, it is it is tough to go through something like this. Um, just like and by the way, this isn't an R&D thing, just like we mentioned about the Paul Pelosi stuff. This shouldn't be that hard to say acts of violence or somebody needing help and the treatment that they should get. We should take time to say, you know, let's work on our families here. Let's keep them off limits. Um, so thoughts and prayers there to the, the Cruz family and everything that they're going through right now. Uh, video for our as transitionable as I can be in this podcast all by myself too. I can't believe this. I got all this real estate I'm talking to myself. Nick, I miss you, buddy. Uh, video, you can check out all of our interviews on YouTube. Type in Can We Please Talk on our YouTube channel. Please hit the subscribe button over there. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Please hit subscribe. Leave us a five-star review and comment. Please helps boost in the algorithm. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it out, each and every one of you that write in, that call, that listen. By the way, nobody's calling me. I don't know why I keep saying calling. This is, what is this, Larry King Live? I can't thank each and every one of you personally. I can only do it in this podcast format. I can't thank you enough for listening each and every week. As always, I am Mike Leon. We'll see everybody next time. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.